Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Dear Slatham. After the blood and guts we heard about last week, there is more of the same this time in the Northern Cape, where General Smuts and his commando are sowing a certain degree of angst as he took control of large areas of the region. The only real problem was that capturing towns like Van Reinstorp and Springbok were not going to win the war for the Boers. But the news of what Smuts was up to in this harsh desert region had given the Boers a great deal of optimism. Those in the Western Transvaal who'd witnessed the Battle of Treerbosch, which we heard about last week, were convinced the English were beatable. General Coeurs de la Rey particularly felt they were onto something. After Lord Kitchener had recovered from his shock of losing Lord Methwin and an entire column in the battle, he was in a depressed state of mind. Kitchener had also heard that General Christian de Vett had burst through a cordon in the northern Free State, and this made matters worse. Was nothing going right in the Western Theatre? De Vett had led his men on a goose chase, except some of the geese had been caught by the New Zealanders, who had trapped over 800 Boers on the all-important Majuba Day. De Vett focused his remaining commander on the relatively quiet area of the northwest Free State and set out at sunset from the town of Reitz on the 5th of March to make his escape. Kitchener had given his troops only a three-day rest after the second major drive, then ordered them back into the saddle. They almost caught De Vett. The general, though, scorned the blockhouses, although they had caused him some disquiet. His logic would be echoed by both the Germans in the First World War and the Second World War as they bypassed the massive Maginot Line in France by merely marching around it. And when you can't defeat those inside a fort, you leave them there and using highly mobile forces head onwards, cutting these defences off. De Vett pierced the northern blockhouse line first, then swung northwest, pierced the second line of blockhouses along the all-important railway, then switched to a southwesterly course and finally pierced the Kroonstadt Vaal blockhouse line near Boerteville. Then he was at the Vaal River, the border between the Free State and the Transvaal. I spent a few days in Boerteville in 2019, attending the biggest agricultural show in Africa. It's a small town, almost bobbing along in the vast plains of South Africa. The character of the place has hardly changed in 120 years. The vet avoided the little town, and the amazing thing is he had managed to travel 200 miles in 10 days. So, it's the 15th of March 1902, yet the reality was this. General Louis Boerter had been forced out of the Eastern Transvaal only the previous month and was now basically hiding out in northern Natal. De Vett had now been forced to leave the Free State, his home. There were only two more really active areas on the battlefront, the Western Transvaal and the Northern Cape. Neither was of any real strategic significance. The gold mines were slowly returning to normal. The Johannesburg Stock Exchange was dealing and trading. Electricity was burning back in Kimberley streets once more. Remember, Kimberley, oddly enough, was the first place in the world to use electric streetlights, courtesy of Rose's De Beers Company support. On the other side of this capital growth were the Boers, who were now watching as their arch-enemy, the English, began to take control of their beloved countryside. The writing was very much on the wall. No one had yet told Denise Rates, our intrepid narrator, who was General Jan Smuts' scout, and at this point... He believed emphatically that the British would one day turn tail and flee South Africa. As Tabitha Jackson writes in her fantastic book called The Boer War, 
which she compiled after producing a documentary series on BBC Channel 4, the English would win the war, but the Boers were about to win the peace. That would do nothing for soldiers like Danae's rates, though. He was currently in the Northern Cape, sitting close to Van Reinstorp with Jan Smuts. To the north of where they rested, around 150 miles away, was the important copper mining centre of Okeep. As I explained in episode 128, Smuts was convinced that if he created enough trouble for the British here, they would send troops out by ship and leave the way open to the south for him to attack, perhaps even as far as Cape Town. Remember I explained how Smuts had broken up his force into smaller units for the trip to the north, as there was not enough water for all to travel together. Finding the terrible massacre at Lillyfontein, Smuts had continued onwards after a few days. They were heading for Silver Fountains, where Commandant Bouvert and his men were waiting, along with Maritz, who managed to gather around him a large group of local rebels. Missing, however, was Van Deventer's commander. As usual, Denise Reitz was sent off to try and find him. I started at daybreak one morning on what was the longest unbroken spell of riding and fighting that I had during the war, for I did not rest or sleep for 80 hours. He rode all that day, continually changing horses. He had two spares along with his main horse, which allowed him to move rapidly even in the high temperatures of the Namaqualand. It was midnight when he located Van Deventer with the help of farmers and shepherds, and then a guide who offered to lead him to where the Boer commander was camped. When Reitz handed his message to Van Deventer, the Boer leader leapt up and ordered his men to saddle up. They left within the hour, dragging the now seriously exhausted Reitz along. Still, they rode all night and the next day, and finally arrived back in Silver Fountains, where Smuts was waiting. Reitz had now been riding non-stop for 36 hours. I hoped for a rest, but at dusk the whistles blew, and the commando started off for the village of Springbok, 30 miles away. That was only three miles from Okeep, where the copper mines lay. At four in the morning, Smuts's commando quietly closed in on the village of Springbok, the different sections moving around to pre-arranged posts with local farmers as guides. Also close by was the village of Concordia, and all three were full of British and Khoi and Nama troops. The plan was to attack each in turn. Springbok was the first. The incidents here were quite important in military history. During the attacks, the Boers would begin to use what would become standard trench warfare techniques and tactics. The British had redoubts and the Boers came armed with dynamite, which they were to turn into hand grenades, or as rates called them, bombs. Being able to lob these in an arc over the top of sandbags and landing them in the midst of troops was a special skill, and as we'll hear, many of the Boers became adept at using this fairly simple idea. The innovation, however, was how they perfected the hand grenades and how they used these creatively over the next few days. There were only 120 British and Nama troops in Springbok, facing Smuts's commando with upwards of 400 men. But the defenders were inside extremely well-designed fortifications. There were three well-built forts on high ground whose loopholes commanded all approaches. Worse for the Boers, Smuts had to detach at least 200 of these men to head off to Concordia and Okeep, which were no doubt going to try and send a sortie and had to be watched and policed. It was a company of Boers against a company of British then, a near-perfect example of what would happen later in the trenches of Flanders where individual units of British and Germans fought each other for a few feet. Reitz was reassigned as an ordinary private to Commandant Bevere's unit 
and was sent with a detached party to occupy a low rise where the road ran between O'Keep and Springbok. The Boers believed the English would surrender as soon as they realised they were surrounded. This was not to be. Number one fort, which Rates would try and neutralise, was a large round house standing on the slag heap of a mineshaft. It was heavily loopholed, and the approaches were obstructed by barbed wire entanglements, so that although less than three dozen men were holding it, they had a clear sweep in all directions. This was not an easy fort to overcome, Rates realised. Worse, Fort Number 2, which lay a few hundred yards away, was constructed on a low hill. Each could see the other and lay down covering fire if required. Fort Number 3 was built on a large rock which overlooked the streets and houses of the village of Springbok. Rates and about 40 Boers made their way to the road that night. The night was black and none of us knew exactly where our fort lay, although the guide said it was close by we decided to send a small patrol to investigate. Of course, Rates was part of the small patrol, and lurking within this group were also two Irishmen. Lang and Gallagher, members of Bavar's commando, and with the Irish love of explosives, they had ferreted out a quantity of dynamite and fuses from outlying mines the day before, with which they had made half a dozen hand grenades. Lang and Gallagher were itching to lob a couple of these at their hated enemy, the English. Naturally, both volunteered to go forward, and naturally, our highly courageous and unique narrator, Denise Reitz, decided to join them. Old friend Edgar Dunker could also not contain his interest in an exciting escapade, and he too joined in. Leaving the rest behind the neck, we groped our way on until we could make out the dim outline of a wall, whereupon... The Irishmen threw the blanket they brought over their heads and ignited fuses of two of the bombs. They were hiding the bright sparks and then threw back the blanket and lobbed the grenades. The projectiles went sizzling through the air while we hugged the ground to await the result. The two hand grenades blew up simultaneously with a crash and the men then rushed forward, hoping to make the most of the explosion. It was rather embarrassing. They had lobbed their precious grenades into an empty cattle crawl, but that was only the start of their trouble, because the enemy was now very much wide awake. Suddenly, a crisp British voice yelled, Halt! Who comes there? Followed by a crescendo of rifle fire, which was only 15 yards away. The Boers had missed the fort. It was now belching fire from every loophole. Rates was looking over the edge of the cattle crawl when he was struck by shrapnel from a bullet. The fragments of lead and nickel splashed into my face. I thought at first I was blinded, but I got off lightly, the punctures only being skin deep, and I had the pieces of metal removed next day with a knife. A somewhat whimsical way to describe a close call, wouldn't you say? As you will recall in this series, our narrator, the young Mr. Rates, has now endured perhaps a dozen small wounds and one large one. I am constantly reminded while reading his book he compiled as a prisoner of war in Madagascar of the pure instinctive courage of the human soul. A story such as this, if you were to retell it as a Netflix series, would appear to be pure fiction, but it's true. So he crouched down, his face a mass of bloody flecks. The British were firing close by, and the Boers loosed off a shot every now and again. The other forts were now wide awake. All were firing into the night. The Boers had stirred up these three hornet nests. 
There was suddenly a lull at Fort Number 1, and Rates and his colleagues bolted back to the shelter of the rise in the road. General Smuts was on the move. He rode up to the men in the dark, saying it would soon be dawn, and that Rates and his colleagues should snipe the fort when it was light, ensuring that no one came and went. Rates took this to heart. He was a natural sniper. It was still dark, and he slithered and slid his way alone back towards the fort, calling this moment an operation of my own. In the grey light he crawled to a rise at the back of the fort and found a large stone which was sheltered by a bush. Our young man was intent on doling out death. It was forty yards from the fort and he knew it would be very difficult to see him when it was light. As soon as the sun was well up I began putting bullets into the loopholes until I had almost emptied my bandoliers. The soldiers in the roundhouse tried hard to locate me, but there was a shrub screening my hiding place. An occasional bullet flattened itself close by, but he was undetected. After firing off most of his rounds, he wormed his way from rock to rock until he was safe behind the slope that protected his colleagues. He had given the occupants of the fort a most unpleasant time. As we'll hear, it was a little more than unpleasant. Rates had a reason for what appeared to be an operation on his own. It was his birthday. The boy was 20. He had been fighting for nearly three years. He congratulated himself that day by spending it by making more hand grenades with his Irish friends. General Smuts rode up later and watched his men construct these devices. Then he suggested they share some with the other boys who were trying to take forts two and three. These needed to be bombed too, he said. The sun was setting, it would be another dark night. Then Commandant Bouvier, the two Irishmen, Dunker and Denis Rates, were to be part of the next day's advance guard. The first thing they did was to remove their boots and carry them as they moved in stockinged feet. So at night, they reached the mound upon which the fort stood and began to scale the slope. Eventually, they reached the outer circle of wire entanglements and they were still silent from the English, no alarm. Time to light the fuses and throw the hand grenades. Each lit a fuse and threw one of their bombs. Each of these burst on the roof. There was still dead silence. The advance guard decided they needed to attack. As they climbed through the wires, the English troops opened fire through the loopholes. The moment the explosions had taken place, the balance of our party had rushed through the dark in order to push home the attack. And they were scrambling up just as we came down. So there was a collision which brought us to the bottom of the heap where we lay laughing helplessly before we could disentangle ourselves. Then Smuts appeared on the scene once more and reconnoitred the blockhouse from the top of the ridge. Let them remain surrounded, he said. Eventually those inside would surrender. It was just too difficult to approach head on. But the English inside were far from fearful. They were shouting strongly flavoured remarks at us as an accompaniment to their rifle fire so he sat down below the rubble heap to await the developments. There was now firing from all the forts, then a dull explosion from number two, followed by cheers from the Boers. The fort had been taken. But at number three, the most difficult to assault fighting continued. It was now almost pre-dawn the next day, but there was enough light to see how the fort loomed over the small town of Springbok. It stood on a high rock like a castle on the Rhine, and we had not much hope that it would be easily overcome. The hand grenades that had been fashioned from dynamite were working well, however. After a few more explosions at number three, that fort surrendered as well. 
Denise Reitz and his friends shouted at the British and fought one to give it up, but they were replied with jeers and more volleys of rifle fire. More grenades were thrown. Eventually, the Boers expended their supply and they were forced to stop. Smuts then ordered Reitz to head into the town of Springbok to try and gather more dynamite from Marnie Maritz, who had taken Fort Number 3, the one on top of the rock. I slipped away in the dark, escaping the bullets, but instead of going wide, I ran as fast as I could through the streets, past the darkened houses. He made his way into the fort, where he found Maritz busy sorting through the arms and ammunition seized from the surrendered British. Surprisingly, they had also found a large bag full of British-made hand grenades, fashioned in a similar way to their armaments. Great minds think alike, particularly when your life is in danger. By the way, the Times' History of the War notes that this was the first time in the history of warfare that dynamite-based hand grenades had been fashioned by both sides. A curious feature of the operations around Ukip, as the use first by the Boers and in retaliation by the defenders of dynamite bombs. Reitz filled a bag with the grenades, then Maritz took him to where the British prisoners waited in the town hotel. There were 30 men squeezed into the lounge, including the officer in command. I asked him to give me a letter to number one garrison advising them to lay down their arms. This he flatly refused to do. Redstone managed to get the officer to write a note to the officer in charge of Fort Number One, but it said simply that Number Two and Three had been taken and that Officer Stewart should act according to circumstances. With note and hand grenades, Reitz rushed back to Smuts, who told him to take the note to Fort Number One. I reached the top. The wire entanglement stopped me, and the soldiers, moreover, were still firing. However, I stood up and called out, Mr. Stewart, Mr. Stewart, here's a letter for you. There was silence as the gunfire stopped. Then a murmur of voices within, and someone shouted what he wanted with Mr. Stewart. I said I wanted him to surrender, whereupon I was told to go to hell, and there was a renewed burst of firing. Reitz slid back down the side of the mound once more, and Smuts ordered the men back, saying those inside would eventually run out of water. There was no rush. The commando made its way back into the town, and Reitz found three new horses in a stable, which he seized. A British officer then rode past him in a bizarre moment, fully armed and seemingly unaware of what was going on. He was taken prisoner immediately. I relieved him of his horse, a sporting Lee Metford, and a Webley revolver, a weapon I had long coveted. In the half-light of dawn, more British troops were being seized as they approached the town. Edgar Duncan and Reitz wandered through the streets when they came across a unit of British troops. Seeing their young Boers, they stood to attention. One said they were defenders of Number One Fort that had so stubbornly denied us. It appeared the British had held out as long as they could, but their water supply was out largely because bullets fired by the Boers through the loopholes had gone clean through the sides of their tanks. They had emerged, expecting the Boers, but of course Smuts and his men had already descended into the town. So they formed up in their company and marched into Springbok, where they planned to continue the battle. However, when they saw that all other British troops had surrendered and the number of Boers was around double their company size, they decided the game was up. The Boers returned to the fort to loot the munitions and were confronted by a scene of carnage. It was similar to what would be experienced in the trenches of the First World War. The entrance was a zigzag passage, built high with sandbags. The doorway was so low you had to crawl inside. 
The water system was so huge, it occupied a great deal of the cramped space inside, but it had been pierced by so many bullets that the water had simply run out. The soldiers had no choice. On a sort of firing platform lay several dead men. One was Mr. Stewart, and another was a young local volunteer named Van Kovorten, son of a doctor from Holland. Both had been shot through the head. Great suddenly realized with a start that it was his bullets he had fired the day before behind the rock that had killed these men. So the whole village of Springbok was in Smuts's hands. There were more than a hundred prisoners and a large stock of supplies along with rifles, ammunition, more dynamite. What's more, not a single Boer had been killed or wounded in this assault on fortified positions. That was a miracle! But Raitz had no more time to wonder about miracles. He had now been awake for three full days and nights without sleep or even rest. The twenty-year-old was beyond exhausted. I now sought out a bed and turned in without removing my boots. I slept for twenty-four hours. So, with the snoring from the youngster, we must end this week's podcast. Next week, we'll hear what happens when Smuts's commander attacked Concordia and the important copper mining town of Okeep. Just a very quick note and thank you to Werner, who has sent me an email this week regarding the Battle of Hearts River. Apparently his great-grandfather, Sebrand Mare, fought in that battle and took a bandolier off a wounded soldier called F.A. Pike, whose name was scratched into the leather. It appears that Pike was part of the 2nd Canadian Mounted Rifles, and as Werner says, his great-grandfather may have been the man who shot the Canadian. Pike was sent packing home on board a hospital ship, and Werner still has the bandolier, with its bloodstains and a few rounds. I'm going to load the picture he sent on my website, abwarpodcast.com, if you'd like to take a look. Thanks so much for taking the time and effort, Werner, and I hope you return to full health as soon as possible. Please try and rate this podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham or send me an email through the site abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transval, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari maar Daar onder in die mil is by die groen.